0: My name is Jesse. Uh, I'll be leading you through the scripture this morning. The scripture we're going to read is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. You can uh, potentially join me up on the screen behind me. Otherwise, you can follow along in your Bibles with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he, excuse me, Abram was 75 years old, Man, I have shaky hands, guys. (laughs) I can't read my Bible at all. Bear with me just a moment. Thanks. (laughs) All right. And 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who would appear to him. From there he moved to the hill country, uh, to the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negeb. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this wonderful place that we meet. Um, thank you for all these people that are here. I just pray that you would open all our hearts, that we would just be open to hear your word, hear what you have to say to us surrounding your scriptures, Lord. Just give us eyes to see and ears to hear, so that our lives might be changed. And that we can become more devoted followers to you, just like Abraham. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you again for this time. And I ask your blessing over this service. I ask these things in the name of your son. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, good morning, Phoenix Bible Church. Uh, my name is Zach. I'm one of the community group leaders here. Um, Pastor Tim and Jay and their kids are on vacation this week. And so I get the uh, honor of introducing our guest speaker this week. Um he is the assistant professor of old testament at phoenix seminary Uh, he also uh, serves at uh, trinity bible church Uh, that's where he attends and goes Um, but uh, far less important in real life but more important to me he was my hebrew professor he um, is the only professor that caused me to have an all-nighter and i had two with him Um, and he Earned the nickname the Abaddon while I was in his class, which means the destroyer um, and earned it very well. Um, so I'm really excited to have Dr. Mead, John Mead, uh, here today to preach to us. Um, he uh, beyond that, he's, he actually really transformed my seminary experience. By the way, he brought me together as a kind of a community with other uh, students, um, introduced me to Fiddler on the Roof. So there's that, too. So uh, uh, but beyond all that, he he loves the church. He loves the word of God and uh, is passionate about people understanding the word of God. So I'm really excited for him to come and teach us today. So Dr. Mead, welcome.
2: (laughs) Okay, are we Okay, we're on great Zach. Thank you for that introduction. I can't see any of your faces. Lights are very bright. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much. This is a real, real joy uh, for me to be here. And uh, it's kind of out of the blue. I don't know if I've ever met Tim, Pastor Tim, in person, uh, but we correspond over email. My last email to him, I was describing how we seem to be two ships passing in the night. Uh, So I hope to meet him after today, you know, when he comes back. (laughs) But thank you all for having me and uh, for inviting me to preach the word to you this morning. It's an honor and a privilege uh, to be here. This morning, we're going to look together at Abraham through the lens of the Broken People Big God series. Of course, you know that the three major world faiths Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, they all claim Abraham as their father. And of course, we all have read these stories so many times. He's a complicated person, in much the same way we are all complicated people. He has his own story or narrative, one of faith and the challenges of belief in the face of tough circumstances. And we'll look at this together but he's also part of the biblical grand story of God. And I want to show how the Bible portrays him in this light as well. I'm going to conclude, don't worry, there'll be plenty of applications and conclusions uh, at the end. I'm going to conclude with specific applications for how the children of Abraham, the people of faith, how the children of Abraham are to live. So there will be application uh, at the end, even if there's not much along the way. The big idea this morning is, and this may be behind me, I don't know, God chose Abraham, one, to be a new Adam, to establish God's kingdom through God's covenant, and two, we're going to look at him as an example of God's transforming grace through faith. So first, we're going to look at Abraham as a new Adam, a new humanity, okay? So below, I'm going to show how Abraham is presented as a new Adam and why that matters. But before we look at that, I need to make some brief comments about the first Adam from Genesis 1 and 2. I believe that understanding these verses is critical to our understanding of Abraham, both as part of God's grand story and also as our model of faith in our great God. So as you know, Genesis 1 is a creation week. Day 6 is the most important day in the creation week. God created Adam as the image of God according to his likeness in the ancient world this is tough we're in 21st century western america and we have to understand a text that was written 3000 or so years ago yeah and 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 in the east the ancient east not here but these terms image and likeness denote a king in relationship to his subjects and to his God. Likeness, according to his likeness. This term indicates that Adam, or humanity at large, has a special relationship to God, like a son to a father. Don't, don't turn there, but Genesis 5, 1 to 3. Adam begets a son, Seth, according to his likeness in his image. Right? There's a sonship relationship there denoted by the term likeness. The word image indicates that Adam, or again, humanity at large, had a special position and status as king under God, God's deputy, so to speak. Humans rule as a result of this status. Simply put, if you get nothing else from this section, Likeness denotes that humanity was created to worship God as a priest, as a son. While image denotes that humanity was created to rule the creation as a king under God. These terms highlight the relationship between humanity and God on the one hand. Humanity was created to worship God, right? Fallen humanity. Right, the dysfunction is that they're not worshiping God, right? That's the problem. We were created for worship. That's what the term likeness means. But on the other hand, humanity, uh, it, the word image denotes a relationship between humanity and the creation. In fact, these terms so closely highlight relationships that we can call this relationship a covenant relationship, entailing that the parties relate to each other with loyal love and faithfulness. Creation is in a covenant relationship with God, and God is committed to his creation with humanity as its king. We also see that God created humanity as his image according to his likeness in order that they might rule, right? We learn this from Genesis 1, That is, that they might steward the creation that God had put under their charge and care. Thus, from this very, very brief summary of Genesis 1 to 2, we can see that humanity was created to worship God as a priest and to rule creation as a king under God's ultimate authority. However, we know from Genesis 3 that they did not succeed, right? Here they are created as God's image according to His likeness. And yet they desired to be God rather than be like Him and image Him to the rest of the creation. And this desire to be God led to their rebellion against God, didn't it? The serpent came and his words were all too easily believed by the first pair, Adam and Eve. And we know the story, that their subsequent banishment from the garden, that they were subsequently banished from the garden to work the ground by the sweat of their brow, in all of the futility of the fallen world, destined to die. I love this song about the victory and the resurrection of Jesus. Because from Genesis three on, The story is dominated by death. But not all was lost. There was a promise that a seed or a descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and his descendants at great cost to himself, right? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman and from that point on, God goes to work to redeem his creation. He chooses Noah and his family to be another Adam or another new humanity for himself. This is what chapter 9, 1 to 17 is all about, but right away, we see that Noah, right, he's another gardener. I don't know if you've noticed this in the text. He plants a vineyard, very much like God made a garden for Adam to dwell in in Genesis chapter 2. Noah is another gardener. He's another Adam or another new humanity. And yet, that story from chapter 919 on, he's naked in his tent, drunk, failing to extend the kingdom of God as the image of God. This results in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and 11, and this scene, of course, signals once again the strong pride of humanity. It all summed up in that phrase of wanting to make a name for themselves. Friends, at this point, God makes one last great beginning with the call of a pagan named Abram. We learn from the end of Genesis 11 that his wife, or half-sister, Sarai, is barren. What an unlikely pair to be God's brand new start. Yet this story, as you all know, is about our great God, not Abraham, ultimately, is it? Abraham will be God's new Adam the one whom God would use to establish his kingdom through his covenants. Where can we learn this? I want to start maybe in an unlikely place, Romans four seventeen. Again, you don't have to turn there, but if you want, jot down the several references that I'll be giving you along the way, and you can review them this week. But in Romans 4, 17, Paul, of course, writing to the church of Rome, he says, as it is written... I have made you, this is Abraham, the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, this is Paul still talking, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul, reading the Abrahamic narrative, comes to the conclusion that Abraham believed in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. From this verse, we learn that Abraham believes in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The last part of this verse, again, Romans four seventeen, focuses on God's creative power in Genesis 1 and 2 as it describes the calling of all things into existence. In Romans 4, then, Paul understood Abraham as a new creation or a new Adam. In his calling Abram out of pagan ore in, in, in north Syria, where Abram worshipped every other god under the sky and under the earth, God calls something that didn't exist into existence. Abram is a new creation of God. Now how would Paul get there? Let's look at several references just from the book of Genesis itself. I wanna look specifically at three words. It's gonna be a very quick survey. You can write references down but I'll read some of the verses. Genesis uses three words, bless, be fruitful, and multiply. Okay? It's very interesting when you trace how these words are used. I want you all to see that the book of Genesis uses these three words to connect Abraham and his family, that is Isaac, Jacob, and Israel later on, back to the original creation of Genesis 1 and 2. Again, you don't need to look these up. Jot them down, look at them at home. First of all, let's start with Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them, right? There's the word blessed. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, our three terms. Now, the passage we just read this morning, chapter 12, verse 2, one of the promises is, and I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, and you be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you. So the word bless you is numerous times. How about in Genesis 17, 2, 6, and 8? Here God is talking again. I will make my covenant between me and you, Abraham, and will multiply you greatly, and I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Again, in Genesis twenty-two sixteen, the Lord still speaking to Abraham. He says this, because you have done this, Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, speaking to Isaac in Genesis 26, 3 and 4, again, God speaking to Isaac saying, I will be with you and will bless you. Here's the word bless again. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And again, your offspring, uh, all the nations of the earth and in the offspring of all... And in your your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Once again, Genesis 26, 24. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. Now, Isaac blessing Jacob in Genesis 28, 3 and 4. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. And there are several more on my page, but I won't read them all. You see that the same mandates and promises given to Adam in Genesis 1, 26 and 28 are repeated not with humanity at large, but with Abraham and his family. As we continue to read this wonderful trail of references, that we see that as Adam was created to establish God's kingdom as his image and likeness, so now Abraham and his family are called to continue this mission through the covenant that God made with them. So Abraham is part of a much bigger story. He's part of God's grand story. His personal story finds its significance in God's grand story. And that's one of the things I want you to see here this morning. Our own stories find their ultimate meaning and significance in God's grand story. It's that way for Abraham. And I believe, as we shall see, it's that way for his children also. Now, let's look at the second point. Pagan to patriarch or unbeliever to mature man of faith. This is Abraham's own narrative. We first meet Abram while he's a pagan in Ur, Genesis 11:26, 26. But God doesn't leave him in this condition. God elects Abram, as we've seen, to be his new Adam, his new creation and the relationship is long and complex. We should consider Abram's relationship with God along the lines of a marriage relationship. Genesis 12, one to nine, which we just read. This represents what we might call today like the engagement period, okay? So you know how this goes, it's a little awkward, um, but, but there's, a, there's a commitment, sort of, right? No marriage covenant ceremony yet, but there's a commitment that we're going to get married someday, right? Now, if you're a good man, right, you don't make this this woman wait forever, right? Okay, you 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 try to try to wrap this up quickly, but but anyhow, Abram has uh, what we might call an engagement period with God in Genesis 12. There is no formal covenant here. Genesis 15, it's a big story, this story of Abraham. It's bigger than a lot of books of the Bible, okay? But Genesis 15 is the marriage or covenant ceremony. This is an awkward chapter, isn't it? We'll talk about it just briefly in a minute. But uh, pieces of animals are parted, right, and split in two. And then there's like this flaming, smoking fire pot that goes through the pieces, right? Right? And Abram's like in a deep sleep as all this is happening. Abram himself never walks through the pieces. But one thing we're told instantly is that God has cut or made a covenant with Abram and his family from that time on. God is with Abram till death do them part. Genesis 17, long, long time goes by. But it represents what we might call today the, the renewal of the wedding vows. Right? The Lord says in Genesis 17:2, "I will uphold my covenant with you." And then finally, in Genesis 22, God seals his covenant promises with Abraham with an oath. These are the major landmarks in the story of Abraham. He's not perfect from Genesis 12:1 to 3 rather he grows in faith and obedience throughout his life now how could we know that how do we know that Abraham falters on the one hand but also grows on the other well, I think in order to understand Abraham's brokenness and failure, we also, and also his progress in faith and obedience, we must re- understand what he was called to be and to do in the first place. And I think much of this can be summarized in Genesis 12 1 3. So Genesis 12 1 3 has a very interesting and important structure. That is, the verses are arranged in a very, very interesting way. God makes six promises to Abram, and they are arranged in two groups of three, each group underneath a command, okay? If you have your text with you, you may wanna look at this. The first command given to Abram is to go, right? Go is what the Lord says to him. Leave your house, your father's house, leave your kindred, leave your, your, your family, your, your country, and go to the land that I will show you. Now, under this command, there are three promises of blessing for Abram as an individual. That's very important. Underneath that command, go, there are three promises given to him as an individual, abram will develop into a great nation right god's gonna make him into a great nation come on you gotta be really happy with that right that's the first thing said to you i'm gonna be a great nation this is amazing all i gotta do is go okay sounds good he's also gonna be blessed and he's going to be given a great name Remember, that's important. Back in Genesis 11 on the Tower of Babel, the peoples were all coming together to make a great name for themselves. Remember that? Abram's now standing here, God talking to him, and God saying, oh yeah, that that misguided effort years ago, I'm going to make your name great. This is the answer to the old creation of the Tower of Babel. Abram's name will be made great by God. Therefore, Abraham was the man of faith. But the first command given to him was to go. And we do see in verses four to nine, which we read, that he obeys this command quite quite, quite easily, it seems. He just, without any hesitation, just goes. Now, the second command in these three verses, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, might be a little difficult to see in your English Bibles. Yes, Zach mentioned I'm a Hebrew professor. I apologize for that right now. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> so but, but in the Hebrew text, at the last part of verse 2, the ESV, the English Standard Version, has something like this. So that, so that you will be a blessing. In other words, I'm reading my ESV, I'm thinking, oh, there's another promise. Abraham's going to be a blessing. But I think that that reading is very unlikely. Rather, the Hebrew text should be read as a second command in that instance at the end of verse two. The text should read as God commanding Abram to be a blessing. Another command. Be a blessing. This command is calling Abram to kingdom work. And to whomever he comes across, he is to be a blessing. He's to be a kingdom agent, working for the good of those around him. And we'll talk about that uh, at the end. But under this second command, there are three more promises of blessing or cursing for the nations, for the world through their relation to Abram, right? So, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse the one who curses you. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As, the, as biblical history and the story unfolds, we see what this means. The creator God's world has been broken, broken and ruined by human pride and rebellion. God intends to use Abram and his family as the instrument for rescuing and restoring his broken creation. Now in summary, the first command followed by the first set of promises are inward focused, centering on Abram and his family as a nation. The second command, And the following promises are outwardly focused and call Abram to be a blessing to all of those around him. Now, here's the deal. I almost picture Abram nodding his head approvingly after the first three promises. He was sort of gazing at his own navel. Wow, a great nation. Uh, I'm going to be blessed. This great name that God's going to give me. I rather like the sound of all of these things. So I wonder the surprise on his face when God didn't stop there and he continues on and commands Abram to be a blessing and sets him and his family up to be the center of the blessing of all the nations of the earth. Well, how did Abram do? How did Abram do? He was called to go and he was called to be a blessing from day one. Well, we don't have to wait long for the answer in Genesis 12. In the very next section, he's in Egypt, and we find that he's trading his wife's life for his own life. Now, I don't know how many of you are married out here. Um, It's not going to go well, right, after that takes place. Uh, One of my old professors um, sent me this shirt summarizing um, <laughs> the, the Abrahamic story here in Genesis 12, 10 and following. Uh, he took it at a, at a store from Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It was a shirt that said, will trade wife for beer. And I thought, okay, that's pretty, that's a good summary of, uh, of Abram. Willing to sell his wife to get ahead, right? That's what we first see, this patriarch, this father of faith, doing. He's lying to save his own skin. Rather than being a blessing to his own wife even, he's ready to hand her over to the Pharaoh in order to save his own life. This lie, as you know, results in the Lord afflicting Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Instead of being a blessing to the Pharaoh, Abram essentially becomes a curse to him and his house. So far, Abram's not doing so well. And although you're not selling or trading your wife, let's be honest, your days in the life of faith are not all peachy keen either. In Genesis 14, it's going to be a quick survey here Abram looks out. For his nephew Lot, he risks his own life and the lives of his 318 men to save Lot and his family from the kings of the east. Thus, we notice a bit of maturity on the part of Abram. He's at least willing to help out his own flesh and blood at this point in his walk with the Lord. In Genesis 15, we come to that marriage ceremony that I described earlier we see from Genesis 15one to 6, that Abram is maturing still. He's afraid of the kings from the east coming back. He's just defeated them in battle. He's afraid that they may come back. So, he even questions the Lord himself, such as, Lord, are you going to follow through on the descendants you promised? I'm paraphrasing. Right? Note that this is not doubt on the part of Abram. I want you to see this. His faith in God's promises is what actually prompts the question in the first place. Don't be afraid to question God, especially in relation to promises he's made from his word. I think that's what Abram's doing here. In fact, Genesis fifteen six confirms that Abram has been believing all this time Abram was believing the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. We're gonna come back to that verse in a bit. However, Abram continues to fail, even though God is doing great things for him. Genesis 16 represents a very low point in Abram's life of faith. Rather than trusting that the Lord would provide a descendant through Sarai, Abram follows Sarai's plan to have a child through Hagar, Sarai's maidservant. This decision and lack of faith had great consequences for Abram and Sarai, including the banishment of Hagar and Ishmael later on in the story. Once again, Abram is no blessing to those around him. His lack of trust... That the Lord would provide an heir through Sarai and himself and his passivity in his marriage led to relational disaster. When we come to chapter 17, Abram is now 99 years old when God appears to him again. God says he'll uphold his covenant with Abram, the one he made with him back in Genesis 15. Even past Abrams and Sarai's child-making years, the Lord will uphold his covenant with Abram. In fact, Abram will be called Abraham, the father of a multitude of nations. Later in this chapter, after the sign of circumcision is given to Abraham, Yahweh says that by this time next year, Sarah will have born Isaac to Abraham. And you would expect Abraham to go, yes, Lord, thank you for your perfect timing, right? That's not what our patriarch says. You know the story. He laughs. He laughs. He laughs in utter disbelief. And yet God will keep his word to Abraham. They will have a son, Isaac. But here, once again, I want you to see Abraham is not exercising what we might call picture-perfect faith in the Lord's promise. His laughter and his comments show that he does not yet believe the Lord's word. He's growing in his trust, no doubt. He hasn't arrived. He's not perfect. And yet God's word will have the last laugh in this case. Chapters 18 and 19. Very quickly, Sodom and Gomorrah. Many of us would like to see those cities burned today, right? We would, if we're honest with ourselves. The sin that they're known for, the voice of outcry that the Lord hears coming from those cities, we would like to see them burned. What does Abraham do in Genesis 18? We tend to read very quickly past the end of that chapter. How long does Abraham intercede on behalf of Sodom at the end of Genesis 18? Abraham pleads with the Lord on numerous occasions. He's this prophet or priest maybe, king pleading with the Lord to spare the city For the righteous who are in it. I think Abraham is now attempting to be a blessing. He actually has the best interests of Sodom in mind as he argues with the Lord over the fate of that city. Finally, we may observe that Abraham is completely devoted to Yahweh and his promises when he offers Isaac up on the altar in Genesis 22. Of course, the angel of the Lord stops him from finally slaying his son, the son of promise, and says, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. <coughs> Abraham passes the test. He was obedient to the Lord to the end, trusting that Yahweh would fulfill his promises. After Abraham died, in Genesis 26, 4 and 5, we read his epitaph. It says, Abraham obeyed God's voice and kept his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. May that be said of us. Abraham did not live a perfect life. Twice he traded his wife out of fear to save his own neck. Many times he doubted the promises of God. But Abraham's great God did a mighty work of grace in him. Abraham's faith was weak and small. But it was placed in a great God who called him and converted him and established his kingdom through covenant with him. Abraham is the great ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ who brought the kingdom of God near. Jesus is the supreme son of Abraham's. He's the blessing to the nations, the one in whom sinners must take refuge. God's promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him is truly fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Quickly, applications and conclusions. Who are the children of Abraham? We read from Galatians 3:29, all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus are descendants of Abraham. So we're not going to get into a long drawn out discussion here about who are the children of Abraham. I'm with Paul, Galatians 3:29. So, first, Abraham's children believe like he did. Abraham was believing God's word from the beginning. He left his homeland his family, and the house of his father, to go to a land which Yahweh would show him. He trusted in God. Through all kinds of trials, he maintained faith in Yahweh. He wasn't perfect, and he did waver at times. But the biblical record shows that Abraham was a man of faith and a great God. He had the faith of a mustard seed, which grew into the, one of the largest trees of all. Are you an unbeliever here this morning? If so, Abraham is not your father. If you have the faith of Abraham here this morning, then you are his true child. If you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ, then please talk to Pastor Tim or to maybe your neighbor around you who is a Christian before leaving here this morning. They can guide you to a saving faith and trust in Christ here this morning. And Abraham's story, Adam's story, God's grand story, becomes yours instantly. If you're feeling lonely and isolated, not a part of anything, trust in Christ today. And then his story, which reaches all the way back to creation, becomes your story. His destiny becomes your destiny even resurrection from the dead. Know Christ before you leave here this morning. Second, and we've got to move quicker now. Abraham's children are counted righteous like he was. In Genesis fifteen six, Abraham was believing and it was credited to him as righteousness. Before a righteous judge, the almighty God, Abraham believed him and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if you have the faith of Abraham, then you also enjoy a righteous status before God that Abram had. As creator, we've touched on that quite a bit this morning, as creator, God is also judge. He has all rights over us as his creatures. We need Jesus as our refuge from God's righteous wrath against sin and sinners. We need His own righteousness so that we can stand before the righteous God as He does. By faith, we can have a union with Christ which gives us forgiveness and a right standing before our just judge and king. Christian, take comfort here this morning. In Christ, you are counted righteous, irrespective of your good works, irrespective of your feelings, irrespective of your parenting methods, plans, and executions, irrespective of your job performance this week. You are counted righteous in Christ. I'll have more to say about good works in a minute, but for now, bask in the assurance that Christ's own life and death have accomplished uh, your righteousness on your behalf. Third, Abraham's children are in covenant with God like he was. In fact, as Christians, we are in a new covenant relationship with God, which is better than the covenant that God made with Abraham. We are in a covenant relationship with him. We are loved with God's fierce, loyal, and faithful love demonstrated to us by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. If you ever doubt the love of God, look to Calvary. Look to the cross. And then look to the victory over death that he won for us. You're loved. You're in covenant in a few minutes. We partake of the Lord's Supper together. This meal is reserved for baptized members of the new covenant or the family of God. It reminds us of the new covenant in Christ's blood. His death opened a new covenant by which we have access to God. Christian, be encouraged this morning. Almighty God in Christ has committed himself to you in the new covenant. Your sins are forgiven never to be brought up again. You have an identity as child of God that cannot be taken away from you. This identity, however, leads us to greater loyalty. Fourth, almost done, Abraham's children obey like he did. He went to the point of offering his own son Isaac on the altar. His epitaph, remember, reads that he obeyed God's voice and kept his charge his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. Christian brother and sister, Abraham was justified by faith alone, but his faith was not alone. In other words, the genuine, authentic, saving and justifying faith always produces good works. These good works, catch this, are not the ground of our justification before God but they are the fruit of our justification before God. The new covenant relationship we have with God is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. Rather, the covenant relationship is founded upon the loyal and faithful love of Christ. It empowers its members to obey God. It writes God's laws on our hearts. The new covenant causes the people of God to obey God because in it, We remember the powerful love that God has for us. As members of the new covenant, we should want to obey God because of all he has done for us in his son, Christ. His spirit indwells us, propelling us to walk as Christ walked. Christian obedience will not be perfect. Okay, we can say that again. Christian obedience will not be perfect. However, this morning, I must still urge you, and ask you, how is your obedience? Are you fighting sin and rebellion against God? Is there a treason against God in your heart this morning? Is there bitterness in your heart against a brother or a sister this morning? Confess that to God and go and reconcile with your brother or sister today. Fifth, Abraham's children mature like he did. Again, we'll not be perfect in this life, but I do think we will mature like Abraham did. Continue to read and study the scriptures. Continue to pray to your heavenly father. Continue to grow and mature in this Christian walk. Abraham the pagan died Abraham the patriarch. How will you live? lastly abraham's children are agents of the kingdom of god like he was this last application is a catch-all grounded in genesis 12:2, where abram was called to be a blessing ultimately jesus christ has fulfilled this call and has appeared as the blessing to all nations he has undertaken and fulfilled the first phase of the messianic mission that we read about in isaiah 61 But this morning, as members of Christ's body, how are we blessing the people around us? Are we kingdom-minded as we raise our children? I'm in a house with a five-week-old infant, and my wife sometimes wonders whether her work is menial or is it significant. And I I just say it's not menial. Sometimes being a blessing is changing diapers and feeding an infant. In the kingdom of God... Zechariah 2 reminds us, we are not to despise the day of small things. Everything we do as Christians is kingdom work to one degree or another. Second, are we kingdom-minded as we look at our neighbors as those needing to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? The kingdom of God is not of flesh and blood. It's a battle between the city of God and the city of man against the thoughts and desires of this world. We must take every thought captive to Christ. Abraham's children have a high calling. Remember, we, the church, are part of the new creation and are called to worship God and to love others. Let our father's faith and failures remind us of the grace of our God, and let, th- let his model spur us onto greater maturity and faith and loyalty to our God. Let us pray. Our Father, we confess that you are the God of creation and redemption. You created humanity, and you have redeemed a new humanity for kingdom work through covenant relationship. You called Abraham to this mission, and you call your church to it as well. Grant us grace and forgiveness in our failures. Cause us to be humble, a humble and confessing people who mature by fighting sin and growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.